Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Series 3 of Conversations with Annalisa Barbieri. That's me. I'm a broadcaster and journalist, and my Ask Annalisa column appears in The Guardian every Saturday. Each week, I'm lucky enough to speak to some amazingly insightful, top-of-their-field specialists, and this podcast gives me the opportunity to speak to them in much more detail on subjects that come up all the time. I self-fund this project, and I'd love to continue to do more, so if you'd like to support us and also listen to this podcast series free of ads, do join us over on Patreon, where you can also get the podcasts before they go on general release go to patreon.com forward slash Annalisa Barbieri. Otherwise, you can leave a one-off donation on ACAS Supporter. You can find the link for that in the description of this episode. Or just please listen and share as much as you can. It would also mean a lot to us if you left a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This episode was my guest's idea. Silva Neves is a sexual and relationship psychotherapist accredited with the College of Sexual and Relationship Therapists and the UKCP. And he's a specialist in sexology, which is the study of human sexual behaviours and intimate relationships. Silva and I have spoken many times over the years about relationships and sex, and he's perceptive and easy to talk to about both. It became immediately obvious as we were doing this even as an introduction to sex education, that one episode just wasn't going to be enough. So we will be revisiting this subject in subsequent podcasts. But for now, here is an entree into sex education. This episode is aimed at anyone and everyone, but parents and their teenage children might find it particularly useful. It's detailed, but not graphic. Silva advises us on where and how to start the conversation about sex education and how to answer questions you may be asked by your children. We cover consent, porn and also how to learn what you like because sex isn't all about what not to do, which is how it's often taught in schools. At the end of this episode, I'll list some books Silva recommends, especially for younger children. And by listening, you can also hear why Silva compares sexual desire to buying loo roll. Hello. So, Silva, this podcast episode was your idea. Why does sex education matter so much to you? 
I think sex education matters to me because, you know, sex and relationships is some of the things that most of us do and we do it without education. And so it means that most of the time that's when people start to become distressed when the sex life goes wrong. Uh, not only people often don't understand how to engage in it in the first place because of poor sex education, but also when something goes wrong, they find it very difficult to resolve it. Problems in people's sex life and relationships can be uh, multiple factors. But if we really stem back to an original source, it is often because of poor sex education. I mean, it seems slightly mad that something that's so important we're so ill-prepared for. Why do you think that sex education is so poor? I can't really talk about other countries, but in the UK, in your experience, why is it so poor? Well, in the UK, let's you know, now we can say it, it has been poor. I think it's changing. So that's the, the, the good news. Very recently, uh, the government has decided to make a commitment to do much better inclusive sex education. So we're hoping that the children currently and, and the next generations are going to have different sex education, let's hope. But people who today live in their 40s, for example, will have had very poor sex education in their childhood or in their schools. The, I think the reason why it's so poor is because it's the topic of sex, right? And the topic of sex is difficult because if nobody receives sex education, it means that then what we have is uh, we feel shame about it and we feel g guilt even about it. And it's not a conversation that is open. So when, so people don't feel they can open up about it. And then it creates myths. So a lot of people will have a lot of misinformation about it or lots of myths that are based on either moral beliefs or just beliefs, really. And those can be transmitted from generation to generation by parents, families, culture, schools even. And then it creates this, this topic being so, so anxiety provoking for everybody that it's like, how are we going to talk to our children about it? It's anxiety provoking when you try to talk to an adult about it. But when you start to think, how are we going to talk to our children about it? It becomes extremely anxiety provoking. The schools really feel like they're just not navigating properly because they think who is going to be the teacher who is going to have to sit through this cringy lesson talking about sex to the pupils and so often they revert to somebody like like the biological teacher who will try to do something very quick in maybe an hour if you're lucky two and usually it then becomes something like the conversations that are easier to talk about which is how to avoid pregnancy or how to avoid sexually transmitted diseases. And that's kind of it. And that's also quite a kind of negative message. I mean, absolutely, it's one of those things that people bring so much baggage of how they were taught. And so it just goes on and on and on. How early do you think sex education should start? I think it should start in primary school. And the reason why I'm saying this is because sex education is not just about sex. It's actually about relationships as well. And that's the bit that we forget. Mm. And I think that in primary school, when it's obviously talking about sex explicitly, is not age appropriate. But in, in primary school, we can definitely talk about relationships. How do we accept people that are different, for example? And how do we teach our children in primary school to, to do that? to not judge somebody because they look different. A typical example would be a boy who likes girls' things mm. or a girl who likes boys' things. 
you know, in primary school already people have judgment about it, and children in primary school start to to feel judgment about it, not because they're judgmental, but because that's what they are taught already. By four years old or five years old, children are already taught the mindset that boy equals blue and a certain set of activities, and girl equals pink and a certain set of activities. So even with that, I think it's important. Another thing in primary school that I think people can teach children is how to be mindful of their own bodies and other people's bodies. So it means that, and this is a story that I hear often, when they remember what's happened to their childhood, they often say, well, I was forced to kiss that grandfather that was smelly that I didn't like to kiss, and I just had to do it. That's really where consent starts. I mean, I exactly. I totally agree with you. And thanks to the job that I do and the people I speak to like you, I learned that quite early. So I've never told my children they have to kiss anyone, anyone at all. It's up to them. And in fact, when I went to Italy, it caused quite a lot of upset because people would be like, and I said, no, it's up to my children if they kiss you. And then I thought, well, you know what, if you're upset, be upset. But how am I to start teaching my girls about consent if it doesn't start very early? I think also people are really scared that if they talk to their children about sex, it's going to make them have it. You know, so if your eight-year-old starts asking about sex, I mean, I instigated, again, thanks to talking to, you know, all the psychotherapists that I do through my job, I just answered all my children's questions the moment they asked them at the table. Because I think we have a natural curiosity Absolutely. And that's often where things are slapped down and or shame or embarrassment comes in. So you think it should be in primary school, but obviously the home plays a part, doesn't it? Yes, of course. And as you were saying, of course, at home, the topic can be very difficult as well, because again, parents haven't received their own sex education. So how can they begin to, to talk to their children about it? And you're right, one of the biggest anxiety is people thinking, if I talk, if I'm going to talk about sex to somebody who is underage, I fear I'm going to encourage them to have sex too early. And that's not that at all. It's just, as you say, it's about curiosity. And if we think about it, children are exposed to those things in many, many different ways that we think is appropriate. For example, Disney movies, the cartoons that we allow our children to watch, is all about relationships and love and kiss and, you know, even adult relationships with prince and princesses or, you know, whatever it is, whatever characters it is. So people are exposed to that. Children are exposed to that. It's kind of okay to think about this because this is what, you know, relationships are part of human life. But when children then have a question when they watch those kind of things, and and parents then start to say, you know, whether it's, as you say, shut down or if they even feel the parents being very anxious, the child is going to think, oh gosh, that was the wrong question, I shouldn't mm. have asked that. And what happens then is that shame starts. And, and shame is something that is very easy to, to, put, to put the seed of shame as soon as you start to think you should not be asking that question or as soon as the child starts to feel, I am wrong for asking that question. I am wrong for even thinking about it or for being curious about it. And then it becomes about the child just having to hold their shame. And that's usually, unfortunately, the consequence of shutting those conversations down. But instead, if parents can learn, but also teachers and everybody else, to be fair, can learn to have age-appropriate conversations about it and to say, there's nothing wrong with being curious about it, it's okay to have questions about it, then suddenly you don't allow shame to, to fester. 
I mean, the age-appropriate thing comes up again and again with children, and especially with sex. How do you know what is age-appropriate? Well, I would say, really, that it's common sense. Say that with an eight-year-old, you would not have the same conversation about sex as with a 16-year-old. I know, but you know about this. Someone listening who's been like, yeah, but I'm not sure, and I'm already really uncomfortable. So if an eight-year-old said to you, where do babies come from? What would you say? What I will say just comes from the mother's uterus, and do you know what the uterus is? Perfect, because this brings me on to something I really learned early on, which has been so useful, which is... Answer the child's question, answer it simply, calmly, factually, but answer just the question because children tend to ask what they can handle. And what happens when people panic is that then they start to go into the whole thing of, well, it comes to mummy's tummy and daddy put it there. And then the, then the child's like, what? But actually, if you kind of just take a moment and think, what have they just asked me? I'll give you an example. We were watching a film, I think it was Meet the Fockers, and Ben Stiller gives a speech and he says the word masturbation. And my daughter, who was quite young at the time, she said, what did he say? And my partner panicked and I just said masturbation. And she didn't ask any more. She just said, what did he say? Right. But because obviously you could thinking, oh my God, we're going to have to start talking about, you know, all of this in the middle of this movie. So, I mean, would you agree with that about just answering the question? It seems yes, like your totally. answer does tally with that. Yes, just asking the question very simply and just the question. You're right. And it's just, it can just be very concise, but there's no point lying to children. At the same time, there's no point giving them the information that they can't hold. So usually children are curious and they're just curious about one thing. And if you just give clarity to that one thing, that's fine. But sometimes children can also be asking questions that you know the answer would be just a bit too adult. And so sometimes that's when you can try to give an answer that is the right answer, but with imageries or analogies or other ways to answer the question that, that children can understand. What about if children hear something, especially when they go to secondary school, I found that suddenly the information is on a completely different level. I use the word information lightly. And they might come home and ask me what something is. And I think it's just too adult. It is important as, as a parent, you've got to also say, you know, this is, this is just not for you right now. Okay. But it's even if when you say that, it's good because what you say is it's okay to ask the question. And sometimes you might need to wait to find the answer compared to say, you should not be asking the question. Let's change conversation right now because that is a very different response. The response of shaming the child for, for being curious is something that parents do unintentionally, but very easy when parents are not comfortable with something. When they say, oh my gosh, how am I going to answer this question? The easy way to do it is to shut it down. But even when you say, you know, it's a really good question, it's okay to be curious, and it's a little bit too adult right now. So let's wait. In a few years' time, we can return to that conversation. Okay, well, let's go back to basics then. What is sex? Well, sex has different definitions because actually, if we think about why people have sex, they have sex for hundreds of different reasons. In my opinion, the basic definition is bodies getting together for pleasure. Very nice. And why do we need to learn about it? I mean, most people work out how to do it anyway. I think most people work out how to do it 
but being really, really quite in the dark. So I think that sometimes they think they work out how to do it, but they don't really. And that's when sexual problems can come. So for example, people can say, yeah, I work out how to do it. I know that sex is penetration, but then they don't have the information, for example, that a lot of women or, you know, people with vulvas don't always have the best orgasm with penetration, but they think they should. So suddenly that, that misinformation can create anxiety or, or bad feelings afterwards. Also, a lot of men and uh, people with penises don't really understand that the average length for ejaculation is a few minutes. So if they last five minutes and they think, oh gosh, that's way too early, they don't actually always realize that this is actually within the normative period of time. So then they can start to feel shame about themselves because they're doing something wrong when in fact they are not necessarily having a dysfunction. Those, those kind of things. Often people say, oh yes, I know how to do sex. But when you actually really talk to them about it, it's full of misinformation. And then they often perceive that sex wasn't so great, or it wasn't so good, or they weren't such a good lover, or their partners didn't enjoy it so much, because their ideas of good sex is quite unrealistic. Or quite narrow. narrow. I mean, sex is not just penetration, is it? I mean, a lot of the problems that you and I have worked on through the letters that I've had are about people saying, I don't have sex. And, you know, we've discussed that actually, what does that mean? Because sex isn't just penetration, is it? That's right. Sex is not penetration. It doesn't have to be penetration. It's one of the big myths. Sex is just bodies getting together for pleasure. And we know that we can get pleasure from our bodies in many, many different ways. That's not penetration. And then you said something about the length of ejaculation. Could you just go over that and explain what you mean about then men think that they have a dysfunction, but it's not? If you don't have sex education and you don't know that ejaculation from the moment of entry with penetration to the moment of ejaculation that three to five minutes is kind of like the average right with consistent thrust then it means that people who are lasting five minutes they are actually in, in pretty good so the, in the top average but they might just feel bad about themselves because if the only information they have is what they watch on pornographic movies for example what they see is the man penetrating the the other actor for 30 minutes before a massive explosion of ejaculation and they compare that to what they're doing themselves, they can feel pretty bad about themselves and think, oh my gosh, I've got a problem, I can only last five minutes. And when I ejaculate, it's not such a big explosion. Gosh, I didn't know that. So that's actually completely normal in inverted commas. So when men last longer, are they stopping themselves from ejaculating? People have different sensitivities. So the length of ejaculation from moment of penetration to ejaculation can be so, so varied. Mm. Think about we would consider it a dysfunction if it lasts less than a minute. And everything else is pretty quite varied. And so some people have more sensitivities in their penis than others. And, and so that means the people who have, have more sensitivities tend to ejaculate uh, earlier. Some people sometimes dissociate with sex. So that means they might have the opposite issue. They might have problem with ejaculating. They can just be going on and on and on and, and they just don't get to the point of ejaculation. So all of that is really wide. And one thing in sexology that's really important is that apart from those very few clinical spaces to think of, you know, what is the normal about, you know, how do we think an ejaculation is dysfunction or not? Apart from that one minute, basically, everything else is normal. So what it means is that a lot of stuff about people's sex life is like there is 
hardly any normal or abnormal, okay, because it's so different from one person to another and one person's body is so different from another. But people will often put a lot of pressure on themselves to fit to a model or to something they've read in some papers or seen online that is not actually the right information and that and then they try to compare themselves to to what they see. Silver, what do you wish you'd learnt, given that you are sort of at the other end of the spectrum and you are a specialist? Looking back, what do you wish you'd learn about sex at school or home or whatever? I wish I'd learned that there was a lot more diversity than, than what I thought there was. For me, I learned that, you know, boys have to act a certain way, behave a certain way, do certain activities, and girls had to do certain activities and that they, they just couldn't be anything in between. And that, that, that and then sex is not just about the penis, you know, that there's a whole body involved. Mm. And, and that actually sometimes one thing I've learned in my studies that I wish I had learned earlier is that the biggest organ is our brain, actually, and not, not so much the body. And if we can look after our erotic brain and we just uh, look after what's going on in there in terms of our turn-ons and our fantasies and our stories, that can be a really great source of erotic joy. So all of those things are things that are not really, even now, they're not discussed very much. I would have liked to, to learn about that because so often I felt in my childhood that I wasn't good enough as a boy because I didn't like football, for example. Mm. In some ways, even though, you know, you might think, well, what, ha what has it got to do with sex? Well, the thing is, like, if we then start to, uh, and certainly it happens to a lot of my clients, you know, when they start to explore relationships with other people and or have start to have sex with other people and especially the first few experiences, if they feel that they don't, they're not good enough because they're not manly enough or not masculine enough, or the other way, you know, for, for women to feel like they're not, they're not sexy enough or not feminine enough or without the right looking vulva or whatever, then already they are going to go into a sexual space, not feeling very good about themselves and their own bodies, and they're likely to have not such a good experience. Why not? Because in order to have a good experience, you have to be relaxed, you have to be trusting. Yes, all of that. You have to be relaxed. You have to feel that, you know, your body is good enough. Your body is not perfect, but it's good enough. And that if you are with somebody who's willing to have sex with you, it must mean that they also like your body and that sex is not a performance. You know, sex is just about figuring out what you enjoy and figuring out what your partner enjoy and just going along with that in the here and now, being very much in the here and now of what are we going to do together for mutual pleasure? But if you're worried about your body not being good enough, or if you're worried about not being a good lover, or if you worry about, or penetration must happen, or if you worry about, you know, all those other things, like I've got to penetrate for 30 minutes before I ejaculate, or she must have a very strong orgasm at the end of it, or we must come together, all of that stuff. If we, if we think of all of that stuff, then we're just not in the here and now anymore. And when you see clients, is there a recurrent theme or problem that they have that you think could have been fixed with better education earlier on? One of the main ones that I see is people thinking that their sex life is going down the pan because they have different sexual desires. 
And so they will often say, when we first met, we had the same kind of sexual desire. We were having sex a lot. And now we've been together for two, three years. Sometimes it can be 10 years. And now suddenly I don't want sex as much. And my partner wants sex a lot more than I do. And it must mean something is wrong. And then they start to worry about my partner wanting to be with somebody else. Or is that because my body's changed or whatever, all those stuff. So if people had the good education, they would not feel so distressed by it because they will know that it is normal for sex to change over time. When you're with somebody on a regular basis, sex does change. How does it change? Well, people are not feeling so excited from from the beginning because when you know somebody all the time and, and, you, and you believe that your partner, your long-term partner is always available, then there is less excitement because of what uh, we know as the erotic equation. And the erotic equation, do you know about the erotic equation? I don't. The erotic equation is attraction plus obstacles equals excitement. I've never heard of that. Why, oh, is really? it, why, okay. why does attraction plus obstacle equal excitement? So we see that, we've seen that, for example, not very long ago when, um, you know, I think it's quite attractive to have toilet paper in, in our toilet. But it's something that we kind of dismiss because it's always available. And as soon as the toilet paper were off the shelves, everybody was obsessed about it. It became so exciting mm. to find <laughs> to find some toilet paper in the shop. And people were even fighting about it, right? So this is the equation. <laughs> if you can't have something, you feel very excited about it. And it comes with sex is the same things. One part of our erotic mind is that we are novelty seeking. And that's the same with, uh, I like to put the analogy with food because I think the, our sexual hunger is quite similar to, to our desire for food. So, for example, I'm pretty sure that we don't want to be eating the same meal every evening. If we do have the same meal every evening, we'll just get bored of it and it will be just le- a lot less exciting, even if it's your favorite meal. So we need, we need novelty. We need new things. We need to see and feel differently. And so when we have a partner, that is a long-term partner who is always available and we do the same things in bed, then what happens is that there is no obstacle, there is no novelty, and so excitement naturally, naturally wanes. And it's not always a problem, and a lot of people think, oh my gosh, it's a problem, but it's not always a problem. That's the education bit. It's not always a problem. It's just something that just happens. And the key to it is not to feel anxious about it and to think that everything's wrong, but to actually notice the change and and checking how they can adapt their sex life. And also, as your body ages, sex will be different. Our erotic mind will be different. Our body will feel differently. We might even have different turn-ons from years to years. And so if we keep in touch with it, and if we talk about it with our partners, then we can navigate it. And one piece of education missing with that is how do we have an erotic dialogue? No, Nobody teaches anybody that. And how do you have an erotic dialogue? Just like how you have a dialogue about food. Well, that's my opinion anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Because when we talk about food, so, you know, there's no shame to it. There's no, oh gosh, that's the uncomfortable topic about sex. Most people learn how to talk about food. So how, do, how about we talk about sex the same way? So for what, example... Like, so what are we going to have for dinner? Yeah, exactly. What are we going to have for dinner tonight? What do you fancy tonight? Mm. And then you just talk about it. And, you know, even if one of you wants a pizza and the other one wants, you know, the healthy option of, you know, steamed salmon. Okay, so how about, you know, compromising and meat in the middle? You know, salmon with chips. So, I don't know, something like that. These conversations people can have all the time. Even conversations like, you know, most of the time, my favorite dessert is 
the apple pie, but you know what, this weekend I just really want the chocolate cake. And that is also sometimes important too, it's, it's about what happens in the here and now really, because our mind and our, our desires can be just so different. Just the same as sometimes we might think, you know what, at the moment I just really don't fancy anything sweet, I just don't want it, I just don't want it. And, and if people are in long-term relationships, there are going to be periods of time when people are not going to feel sexual or not going to want it. And that's also fine. It's part of the process and getting to know each other. So what I'm trying to say here is the way that we have erotic conversations is not so different from the way that we have other conversations with our partners, but it feels such a, it, it's so anxiety provoking because it's a topic of sex that a lot of people think, oh my gosh, how am I going to start? Well, guess what? You have the skills already. And often when, when I tell my clients, maybe it feels like such a, a dark space and anxiety-filled space, but actually what if you did have some skills and what if you can transfer the skills of conversations that you have and transfer them with a different topic, but it's actually the same kind of conversations. How does that feel? And suddenly people can start to think, oh gosh, yes, we do talk about food, we do talk about what to have for dinner, we do talk about the pleasure of it, we do talk about the function of it. And yeah, oh yes, I also realized that, you know, my favorite dessert when I was in my early 20s is not the same favorite dessert I've got now. Things change. We have to keep in touch with it. Yeah, I can imagine that's very difficult. I mean, the thing is, you know, you're right, we do talk about food and you get those things that you stick on the fridge to tell you what you're going to have for dinner that night. I can't mm -hmm. imagine many people sort of using that for sex. And But that goes back to you know, the shame and the embarrassment. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. When I asked 
on social media for people what they wish they'd learnt, there was a really recurring theme. But I think it's kind of relevant because I think what you're saying as well is not only is there so much shame when we are taught it, it's quite biological. It's quite factual, but sometimes very skewed to one side. I mean, I went to a Catholic school and we were taught about sex, but we weren't taught about consent. And the two topics that really have come up from women were that they wish they'd been taught that it was okay to find sex enjoyable because the way it's taught is about don't get pregnant. You know, I we were brought up to think that only men had libidos. Mm. Women didn't. It was all about fighting men off. But I want to go back to the thing of consent because I think it's a really big issue. And, you know, just yesterday morning, I got an email from a girl asking, 19 years old, if it was okay for her boyfriend to strangle her. Mm. And... It's not a nice image, but I think it's so important that we teach people that no matter how old you are, if you're having sex, if you're not comfortable doing something, then it's absolutely okay, imperative, in fact, to say no. I think that that's so important because also you and I have talked about it doesn't really matter. If you don't want to do it, you don't want to do it. And even if you're in a polyamorous relationship, If you don't want to do something, you know, there are still rules. Can we talk a little bit about that and how important consent is, even if you're already in a relationship? Yes, absolutely. It's so important. And I think it comes, it comes back to the issue, you know, with the strangling conversation. It's a very uncomfortable one. And also this is to do with the kind of pornography that people watch as well. And the mainstream free pornography that you get is often quite misogynistic because it is made by men for men and they don't do it with sexual health in mind or with consent in mind, they do it for entertainment. And pornography is really entertainment, that's it, it's not sex education. So when people don't have sex education, and that's why it's so important to have sex education because when they don't have sex education and all they have is porn, then that's when you start to get all those things of men thinking, I've got to strangle my girlfriend in order for us to have really good, top, sexy, kinky sex. And the thing is that most of the time, it's not what their girlfriend is going to want. And also, if you do it without proper education, even if that's a kink that you want to try, but you do it without proper education, you can actually do harm. So you've got to really learn about it. And it's not just a a matter of watching it on porn and thinking, oh, that's what my girlfriend wants to do. But the other issue also here is that people often assume that's what people want without actually even asking about it hey, you know what, I've seen this thing on porn and I thought it could be fun to try it. What do you think about that? Right? People don't have that that conversation. They think, oh yes, sure, I see that on porn everybody does in no sex. That must mean my my girlfriend's going to like it, so I'm just going to go straight in there. And that's when there's no consent and that's when there's no conversation about it because porn, mainstream porn, does not show consent. It does not show preparation for sex. It does not show any conversation. It's just the intense stuff that that it shows. So that's an issue. And that's why sex education is very important. Poor sex education also means that uh, what people are left with, and especially women, they're left with a world that is quite misogynist and still is now. And time and time again, I've heard women say, yes, I was told in my childhood that, you know, if I make my bed, I should lie in it. And that's it. So I chose that man and then I've got to basically say yes. Or people feel a lot of shame or guilt for saying, no, I don't want this because women are not brought up to have a voice. And it's still 
quite prevalent today, and that's a very big issue. So uh, I'm glad that this 19-year-old asked, actually, because it might mean that she wants to try to find her voice. And, and it's almost like needing permission to be able to say, no, no, I don't want that. Well, absolutely. And I think in the lack of education or a space where you can talk about this freely, she can't talk to her parents. Yes. I mean, you know, I know as a teenager, I looked to my parents for permission to say no to certain things. I didn't get it. And I had to find my own voice at 18. And I mean, I think a lot of the people who write into me are looking for permission. They sort of know because we, we've not learned to trust our instincts. So, yes, I mean, what would you say then to any teenagers who are listening about sex in terms of consent? In terms of consent, I would say do not assume anything. Ask the questions to your partner and talk about yourself, your own turn-ons and check if that's compatible with your partner. And consent is not just a yes or a no. Yes, I want to try this. No, I don't want to try this. It's about a lot more detail than it's always in the here and now. So what it means, it's about saying something like, my turn-on is touching breasts. What do you think about it? And then the other person has to really think and they can take their time to think, do I want my breast to be touched today? Mm. Okay. And if then that other person says, yes, today, it's a here and now. And if after five minutes of touching the breast, they start to feel uncomfortable about it, they can say no. And that's the end of consent. And then the next week, the following week, if they want to have sex again, there should not be an assumption that because that person said yes, the first time that is going to be an automatic yes the second time. So consent had to be asked and talked about every single time. That sounds quite prescriptive though. I mean, thinking about sex generally, if you have to, or is it just for sort of things that are extracurriculum as it were? Well, I don't, I, that's what a lot of people say, but we, that's going back to our conversation of, of learning to have an erotic dialogue. If we learn to have an erotic dialogue, then it can actually be part of the the preparation for sex. It can mm. be actually quite fun. It can be quite exciting. It can be part of the anticipation. So, of course, you know, if you do it in a questionnaire way, that's just probably not going to be so so fun. But you can actually have the consent conversation. Almost as part of a foreplay. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But consent is extremely, extremely serious and extremely important, but you can still have it in a way that is fun and horny. I suppose also it's about how do you teach someone that they are allowed to say no? By really, as you were saying earlier, giving the permission to, to say it's absolutely crucial that you can say no. And sometimes if that means that you are upsetting your partner, it's better to upset your partner than to say yes to something that you don't want to do. Also, if your partner's a bit upset at that time because they're disappointed, they're not getting what they want today, but, you know, generally they're quite open and nice people, then you might just want to have a talk about it. If your partner consistently gets upset when you say no, then you might just want to think about what's going on in the relationship. And really that advice is for anyone of any age. So yes, I mean, I would reiterate that really to anyone listening that if you don't want to do something, it's absolutely okay to say no at any stage of the interaction, if you like. And yes. also... And it's um, okay to change your mind. It's okay to change your mind. And also there's nothing wrong with wanting like vanilla sex, as it's called. I mean, I get a lot about that saying, I just don't want to do X, Y, Z. But, you know, they just feel so much shame because they feel like it's... 
they're being really boring. And I just, either that comes back to really knowing yourself. Yeah, actually with that, what's really interesting is that things have really shifted when we talk about vanilla versus kink. And I think that's probably since, you know, books about it kind of came out and suddenly kink became the thing to do. It became the exciting, colorful things to do. And then vanilla became the boring thing. Mm. And, and actually this is really, again, it's a piece of sex education. It's really important that, you know, vanilla sex is not the opposite to kink in a way that it's not that vanilla is boring and kink, kink is exciting and in order to be having a fantastic sex life you've got to do kink. Kink is one part of people's eroticism and if for some people it's part of their orientation and it's something that they absolutely love and need to do in order to have a satisfying sex life but vanilla is also the same. It's part of people's orientation, the part of people's eroticism and that's some things that people need to do in order to have a satisfying sex life just like the same as all kind of diversities. There's not one that's better than the other. It's just that it's diversity, it's different. People are different. And so it's really important not to feel shame if you're somebody who enjoys vanilla and if your eroticism is vanilla. Important not to feel shame. It doesn't mean that you're less than someone who, who enjoys kink. It's just different. And actually vanilla in its first place, I don't know about you, but my association with vanilla is that it's quite a, a very complex flavor. It goes with a lot of different things. It's very adaptable. And so vanilla has lots and lots and lots and lots of really, really great stuff in, in that sexuality. It's the best selling ice cream. So <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. And, and it's really, really different. And some people like to dabble into kink once in a while, like light kink, just for that little bit of novelty. Some people can do that happily and that's fine. Other people are just not interested in it and that's also totally fine. And you mentioned about porn and it's not sex education. I mean, I would say that porn isn't actually largely what sex is all about. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's just something that is intense just for adult entertainment. For some people that just need some aid for masturbation, really deep down, that's just what porn is. That's the only goal to the industry. You know, I'm making a lot of money out of it. So there's nothing to do with real sex. It's nothing to do with education. It's just like watching a movie uh, with, you know, flying saucers and big explosions. You know, that's not real life. And, and most people watching those movies, they know it's not real life, but it's good to just you know, get out of your head and watch something completely different. In some ways, that's what porn should be considered as, but right now it's considered as sex education or it's used as sex education. Yeah, well, I think, as we've said, in the absence of anything else, that's where a lot of people get it and a lot of online porn is absolutely horrific and quite dangerous, I think, and very violent towards women. It is. It's very bad. It's very misogynistic. And, and I think part of sex education, and I'm not sure if it will happen, I hope it will happen, when it's age-appropriate, so for teenagers, to actually also have teachings about how to use porn and how to navigate it because we absolutely need porn literacy these days. Now, the, the, the one uncomfortable fact is that porn is just not going to go away mm. and porn is just going to continue to be accessible one way or another. And if people really want to know about it, they will find access to it one way or another. So we have to give the right proper knowledge about what it is, what it is not, how to watch it and how to not watch it, what are the boundaries, and, you know, like, like literacy, basically, because otherwise people just won't know and they just might just start to get wrong information about it all. If someone's listening and they access porn or they have a child who does, you sort of mentioned about sort of, you know, accessing it. This wasn't your exact words, but, you know, responsibly. I mean, what what are the parameters? Well, 
in my opinion, I think that the best, if, if you are really interested in porn and you really want to be as safe as possible, I would suggest that you look for ethical porn. There is now more and more ethical porn out there. And, and usually ethical porn is the one that is made by women and it's for women or for everybody. And ethical porn of uh, sometimes now include consent conversations. It includes all types of bodies, not just uh, one type of body. It includes all penis sizes. It includes all sizes of breasts and vulvas. So it's actually a lot more gentle, but actually also a lot more real sex. And the ethical part of it, it also means that usually people that do it, so people that make it, but also people that participate in it, is a lot more consensual. So that means that there's a lot less exploitation of performers. So that's what I would say. Ethical porn is, though, some things that you have to pay for. It's not free for everybody. But I think that, you know, we pay for all of our other entertainment, so we should pay for porn. I'd like to talk about pleasure now because like we said at the beginning I think a lot of sex is about don't do this don't do that this is going to happen um how do you find out what you like well you kind of find out what you like with experiments <laughs> and with imagination so first imagination you might just think okay you know what I like the I like the idea of of uh, you know a particular sexual activity I'm not sure if I'm going to like it or not then you know you can just start to experiment a little bit slowly one step at a time just to figure out if you're going to like it or not and if you don't like it that's when the no comes in and then you just think okay well now I know definitely I don't like that but if you do it slowly and slowly rather than diving in you're less likely to harm yourself as you experiment so it's just like a little a little taster once in you know for something that you haven't done before just to figure things out Sometimes you absolutely know what you love and, and that's totally fine. Again, for that, I'd give the, the analogy of food. I think that sometimes we, when we're presented with new food that we've never seen before, we might think, do you know, I'm not really sure I'm going to like that. You know, I'm just um, not, like, not quite like the idea of it. But let me have a little taste because everybody tells me I should try it. You try a little bit and then you thought, oh, actually, that's quite nice. And then over time, that can become part of your erotic mind. It can be a new thing and that's how you can expand your erotic palette. But there might be other things that you never, ever want to try. Even though you've never tried it before, you know you don't want to try it. And that's also totally fine to, to say those things. So, you know, I'm kind of quite willing to try some new and exotic food I've never tried before. But, you know, as soon as you start to talk about fried insects, I'm like, no, you know what? I just don't want to go there. I don't care if people love it. I just, I just don't want to go there. Mm. And it's totally fine to say that. For me, it's oysters. Oh, gosh, I hate those as well. <laughs> it's like somebody blowing their nose into your mouth. It's just, it's never going to do it for me. I think I've tried it once. So I'm never going to go back there. There you go. You see, so that's the same thing with sex. And, you know, take it slowly, take it gently. Don't put any pressure on yourself. Just experiment. Sex is really that, if you think about it, really. It's just uh, an experience. And sometimes the experience is great and fun and you want to repeat it. And other times it's just, okay, so you might repeat it sometimes, might not. And sometimes it's not such a great experience and then you just don't want to do it again. Self-pleasure and masturbation. I mean, that's something that people said that never came up in their sex education. It didn't mind because we had quite a fantastic science teacher, you know, just sort of mentioned it and said, you know, it can be really nice. I think she was the sort of first person in my orbit ever to mention it. How is masturbation different to sex? 
It's a completely different experience because it's one that is sex with yourself, mm -hmm. basically. So it means that you don't have to worry about somebody else's pleasure. You don't have to worry about navigating what are you going to do together. There's no kind of not even needing a constant conversation in that way to say, what are we going to make tonight? It's kind of more about an experience and a contact. It's an erotic contact, but also a psychological contact with yourself. You can call it self-love. I, I quite like to call it self-love because it's really about taking a moment where it's all about you and your own erotic mind and you can literally have any fantasies that you want that, that aren't necessarily things you might want to do with other people, but something just for yourself. You can enjoy that part of your erotic mind as well as your body, as well as the pleasure of your own touch on your own body. And that is, I think, very different compared to, compared to partnered sex. And some people masturbate for different reasons. Some people, it's for that, for that pleasure, you know, a, a moment of self-love. But sometimes people want to masturbate because they've had a very stressful day at work and it's going to be, on th for that day, the best stress relief. That is also okay, okay? Um, because sometimes that's what the body needs to do to, to feel better. But what I would say, though, is when you do want to do solo sex, make sure that you do it properly, that you allocate proper time for it because it's important to honor one's body and one's erotic mind when we do solo sex. I often hear people say, oh, I just masturbate quickly in the bathroom just before going to work or just quickly before bed. And I'm thinking, why, why so quickly? You know, I think it's something to do with, with shame about that. People feel shame about solo sex and masturbation or self-pleasure. I think, you know, honor it, take the time for it. Yeah, I mean, there's a huge amount of misinformation and for a long time people thought only boys masturbated and not girls. You mentioned there that some of the fantasies that people can have masturbating are completely different to what they'd actually want to do in real life. And this is something, again, that, you know, I've sort of come across. Number one, why is that? And two, then, is that not, could that not be potentially quite dangerous to discuss that with a partner? Why do we have that? Because, well, our erotic mind is sometimes is a bit different from what we actually want to do in real life. So in one, one interesting thing is that in 2019, I think it was 2019, Pornhub came with, you know, every year they come with the statistics of uh, users, what they were searching for. And they came up with the second top search was alien sex. And that really reflected the fact that people actually really enjoy sometimes fantasizing about things that they cannot possibly do in real life, mm. you know, having sex with an alien, for example. But for a lot of people, it could be things like they don't want to do in real life because they're monogamous, but, you know, the idea of having group sex can be really a big turn on and they definitely don't want to do it in real life. But in the erotic mind, imagining in them doing sort of uh, group sex whilst they masturbate in their solo sex time can be a really, really different part in their sex life. We know in research now that sometimes people that have fantasies, some of those fantasies people will be wanting to, to do them in real life, to act them out. But actually, there are some fantasies that do not translate into behaviors. There's definitely a difference between behaviors and fantasies. So if you masturbate to a fantasy that you don't, that you don't want to do in real life, one of the anxiety is, well, if I keep indulging in it, I might, I might then want to do it in real life. That's not necessarily true in the research that we know about. But... Sometimes you were saying about sharing with partners, there are some sexual fantasies that might not be appropriate to share with partners. And you know what, in our, what is in our erotic mind? Sometimes some things that we can share 
but some of the things we don't have to. You know, we, it's, it's still still okay to retain some erotic privacy. You mentioned that women don't always orgasm by stimulation to the vulva. I think that's what you said. Penetration. Penetration. Do you know why that is? Well, it's because the main organ for pleasure for women is the clitoris. And the clitoris is actually a very big structure. And if you stimulate the clitoris, you are likely to have pleasure and to have quite a lot of pleasure. But with penetration, depending on how the penetration is done, it doesn't always stimulate the clitoris or not stimulate the clitoris enough for pleasure. So people can sometimes not have the orgasm, not reach orgasm with penetration, but they will get orgasm with clitoral stimulation. And um, why do you think we're so obsessed with penetration and penises? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> I think that penetration has become the gold standard because at the time of, uh, well, I think it's, it's t something to do with maybe religion, but also the Victorian era, maybe, that sex was considered to be for procreation, not for pleasure. And what it means is that, therefore, penetration, penis in vagina penetration became the gold standard as a way to say this is for procreation. Silver, at the end of this, what are kind of might be the takeaways that you'd like people to know to become educated about sex? So the first one would be consent. Consent is everything. It has to be observed throughout the sexual behaviors and in between. When people start to have sex to be pleasure focused, it's not a performance. It's pleasure focused. That's the point of sex. It's important to be mindful of diversities. One person's turn on can be somebody else's turn off. And so the importance of understanding the, the and, and learning the erotic dialogue, just like what are we going to have for dinner? Having the same kind of erotic dialogue. It's a learning. In sex, usually there is just no normal. And so it means that people have many, many different things that they want to do or like to do or are interested in doing from vanilla all the way to kink. And, and all of it is fine. It's up to what you want. That's very important. And that's going back to consent. And of course, masturbation is healthy and normal. Thank you to Silva for that great conversation. A couple of points I really want to underline. Porn is not sex education and often has little bearing on what real sex is. Having fantasies while you masturbate doesn't mean you want to do those things in real life, so be selective about who you share those with. Consent is everything, and if you don't like something, you can say no and you can change your mind. If you're a child and something is happening which is worrying you, please remember Childline childline.org.uk. You can telephone them on 0800 1111. And a word here that if you ever decide you do need to consult a sexual relationship counsellor, please make sure they are accredited. The COSRT website is a great place to start. As I said in the introduction, we will be doing another podcast about sex. In fact, in the very next series. So if you have any questions at all about sex, no matter how silly you think they may be, please email us at conversationswithanalisa at gmail.com. Your identity will remain totally anonymous. Silver has written a book called Compulsive Sexual Behaviours. Some other books he recommends, which are aimed at younger children, are What's Happening to My Body for Girls and Boys, Hair in Funny Places, My Mummy Laid an Egg. I'd also like to recommend What's Happening to Me, both the boys and girls edition. And I recommend you get both, regardless of the gender of your child. I got them when my children were really young and just kept them on the bookshelf and they would visit and revisit them as they got older. For older children, Silver recommends a video about consent called 
cup of tea, which you can find on YouTube. This is already shown in some schools. A website that Silver recommends for good sex education is Bish UK, which is aimed at 14-year-olds and over. You can pick up the links to all of these under the episode description. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode of Conversations with Annalisa Barbieri. The series is produced by Hester Kant. The music is by Toby Dunham and our artwork is by Low Cole. Follow us on Instagram at Pocket Annalisa or you can email us at conversationswithannalisa at gmail.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, it would mean a lot if you could share it with someone you think might like it and also give us a review on iTunes. Please join us again next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, this is Annalisa. I started doing this podcast because it's an idea I really believe in. So much so that I decided to put my money where my mouth is and self-fund the project. I really want to keep releasing this podcast for free. So if you enjoy this episode, a way you can help is to visit our ACAST supporter page and give what you can. You'll find the link in the episode description. Thank you.